As you're seated this morning, if uh, you have your Bibles or something with your Bible on it, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, you can also open up the YouVersion Bible app, follow along with the points and the verses as we go along this morning. As we're getting started this morning, I want to ask you to help me with something, and this is one of those things that uh, every now and then I have to say. And we've kind of reached the time where I have to say it, and that is we need to do a better job in the house of not walking in and out once we get to this portion of the service, okay? If you're about to bust, don't bust on the seats, all right? Slip out. But unless it's absolutely necessary, I need you to stay in place until we're done. Is that okay? All right. We've got several things going on in the life of our church. As Before we get into the text, I want to make you aware of. Next Sunday, we're having water baptism. So uh, if you have recently recommitted your life to the Lord or you've made a first-time commitment, uh, see one of our staff pastors, and we, uh, we want to uh, celebrate with you what God has done in your life next Sunday. We're just going to do that in the 11 o'clock service because we want to be able to live stream it. and So you'll have it, and you can watch it over and over and over. And uh, our Easter season is quickly approaching. Two weeks from today is Palm Sunday. We're going to have an outdoor service on Palm Sunday, kind of like what we do in the fall. We're going to uh, bring both congregations, well, it's one congregation, but both services together. Nine and 11 will come together at 10 o'clock. Everybody say 10 o'clock. Outside. That means you got to bring your own chair, okay? So bring a lawn chair. We're going to provide everything else. We'll provide lunch. We'll provide um, uh, inflatables and an egg hunt. We're going to do the whole deal that day. We'll have a great time as a church family. Help me pray for good weather, okay? Everybody remembers worshiping in the rain last fall. And we, we'll do it if we have to, but we don't want to, all right? Then coming up on Good Friday, we're going to have a night of worship called A Night at the Cross on Good Friday that evening at 7 o'clock. Uh, that service is always a powerful time. We usually do it on Palm Sunday night, but we're moving that to Good Friday this year. And then Easter Sunday is three weeks from today, and uh, we're going to have three services on Easter. Uh, As you know, the church is growing, and that is an awesome blessing, and what happens on Easter Sunday is everybody who claims this is their church all show up at the same time, and if they all show up on Easter Sunday, we can't fit them in two, so we're going to do three, all right, and the times are completely different than normal, so make sure you know them. Say them with me, 8 a.m., 9.45, 11.30, okay? So pick a service and come. Many of you will be serving. We thank you for what you're going to do to make Easter Sunday a great day to reach our community. So we're in Exodus chapter 11 this morning. Let me tell you what's really cool about what we're going to talk about today. What we've been singing about today, we're going to talk about today why we can sing about what we sang today. What is the basis of us singing songs about the lamb and the blood? Well, today we're going to unpack that. And if you stay with me today, I believe that you're going to leave with a greater understanding of this part and this concept of God's word. Now, my work is cut out for me today because we've got about 40-some students who are probably low on sleep and energy this morning. They may have all they expended their energy during worship. But I want to see your eyes, okay? I'm going to be looking at the green shirt people. I want to see your eyes this morning, all right? I want to make sure that you're awake, all right? And uh, I believe the Lord's got something amazing to say to us today. I know he does. And so let's get started. So when we, when we get to Exodus chapter 11, it's important to know where we're dropping in at this story. This is the story of Moses and the end of those ten plagues. And if you're familiar with the story of Moses and Exodus, we know that the Israelite nation, the Hebrews, sometimes today I'll say Hebrews, sometimes I'll say Israelites, same people, okay? They have been enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt. Moses comes along as their leader, and he stands before Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and he says to him, God told me to tell you to let my people go. Well, Pharaoh refuses. We know that he refuses to do that. And so God sends 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And when we get to chapter 11, 
We're about to settle into the tenth plague. Okay, here we go. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Jump down to verse 4. Now Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now go over one more chapter to chapter 12. If you're, if you're following along in the Bible, go over to chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door flame. Now you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, and he will, say that with me, pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Father, we pray your blessings upon the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. And God, I pray that what you've laid on my heart for this day, God, I pray that it would bring a greater understanding of your word. A greater understanding of your word, God, will create better disciples who understand what it is that we sing and we preach and we read. And I pray this word today would find good soil, deep root, and produce an eternal harvest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In July of 2018, the online Christian magazine Relevant took to Twitter for the following Twitter poll. And here was the question. What common church phrases confused you most as a kid? Now think, of that, think about that for a second, okay? Those of you especially who grew up in church. What are some church phrases that were confusing to you as a kid? So people took to Twitter and here were some of their responses. Have you found Jesus? To which someone responded, wait, when was he lost? Didn't he come after us? Somebody else tweeted, set our hearts on fire. To which someone said, or wait, don't, heartburn isn't anything anybody wants. Then there was this one, ask Jesus into your heart. We've all heard that one, right? Ask Jesus into your heart. To which someone said, my son was about four years old. He asked while eating Cheerios, if Jesus lives in my heart, are the Cheerios hitting him on the head when I eat? <laughs> and another person responded, I thought Jesus living inside me was why mom said don't swallow gum. I thought it would get stuck in his hair. Okay, fair. Somebody said um, a, a, an, an unusual phrase was we asked for a hedge of protection around us. How many of y'all had grandmas that prayed that hedge of protection? 
Somebody said, heads of protection. When I was a kid, I could make my way through any hedge. Uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Someone said, anytime I heard the word yoke, I thought they were talking about the yellow part of an egg. Okay, right? And then there's this one. Love on your neighbor. To which someone responded, wasn't there a commandment not to do that? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's right. And, And you guys get it. There are some phrases out there that we use in our Christian conversations and language that, that you know, we, we really don't realize sometimes what we're saying and how it appears to other people. But maybe one of the ones, and it made the list, it's one we've sang about this morning and we're going to talk about today, that on the outside of the church may be one of the most unusual and maybe even, even disturbing is this one. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now think about it. If you don't understand church... Somebody tweeted on that and said, I don't want to be covered in the blood of anything. Now, y'all are not laughing because you're like, can we even talk about this? I mean, you know, is this sacrilegious? But let's think about it. Outside of church, how does it make sense when we sing about the blood and we sing about the lamb and all those different things? I mean, we just sang a new song. Look at it. It says, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. That's unusual because when you get blood in your clothes, you try to find a product that can get the blood what? Out. And here we are saying that blood actually washes us white. So if you've ever questioned this idea of blood or the lamb, uh, this morning we're going to find out that those foundational concepts to our faith are found in Exodus chapter 11 and Exodus chapter 12. Now, to understand where we're going to go today, we need to understand where we've been. So we're going to have to go a little Sunday school, okay, on everybody. All right, green folks, have I got your eyes? All right, here we go. For what you just sang and jumped and clapped about to have even greater significance, I don't want you to miss this. Everybody else, got your eyes too? So when we get to Exodus chapter 11, here's what we've got. We've got a nation, the Hebrews, the Israelites. For 430 years, they've been slaves. They are foreigners in a foreign land. They are under the hand of the Egyptians. And they got there because 400 years earlier, a man named Joseph came to power in Egypt, who was actually a Hebrew himself, And the way all these Israelites made it to Egypt was that there was a famine in the land and the best place for food and water was in Egypt. So these 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, all make their way to Egypt. Now, we understand when we're talking about Joseph, let's go back to what we talked about last week, Abraham and Isaac. Joseph is Abraham's great-great-grandson. Joseph is Isaac's grandson. We talked about last week that God made some promises to Abraham and he said to you, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to send you to a great land called the promised land. Well, when we get to Egypt, half of that has already been fulfilled. This nation is a great nation. They are a nation of 600,000 men. Plus the women and the children, there's possibly 2 million Hebrews living in Egypt. Now, the Bible says that after Joseph died, another Pharaoh came in place who did not know all the stories of Joseph, and he sees all these uh, people as infantry, infantry, what's the word? Infant, that word, okay. They're in his territory, let's say. They're all up in his grill, all right? Let's say it like that, all right? And they're taking over, and he says, look, you can't take over, so what we're going to do, we're going to turn you into slave labor. And so the The Hebrews become the slave labor for the Egyptians. And the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh, he's one of the most evil, tyrannical leaders of all time. How bad is he, you ask? We read in Exodus chapter 1 that to eliminate this rising nation of Hebrews and Egyptians, he says, everyone, wake wake them up. Y'all sit up. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to get eyes this morning. I'm going to get eyes. I'm going to get eyes. You're going to get it. I'll tell you what, I'm going to take my coat off and get busy. Here we go. (laughs) This is going to be fun. I knew I had a tough job today. This Pharaoh is so bad, y'all. Y'all say, how bad is he? 
in, Egypt, in, in, in Exodus chapter 1, all of the newborn children, the males, he throws in the Nile River. But one gets through. Talk to me. Who was it? Moses. Moses gets through. And in an amazing turn of events, Moses winds up in the palace of the king. He winds up killing an Egyptian. He flees into, uh, into the wilderness where he, he is, he's approached by God in a burning bush. God calls him. He says, you're the man I'm calling to lead my people out, your family out. He sends him back. He stands in front of Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, we're getting it. And so God says, in order to demonstrate that I am God, I'm going to send 10 plagues. Now watch this. Look at this. These 10 plagues. You remember this from Sunday school, right? Water turns to blood, frogs, lice, flies, disease on livestock, boils, hell, fire, locusts, darkness. And then the one we're getting to this morning, the death of the firstborn. And God does this for two reasons. One, he wants to prove that he alone is God. He has all authority, all power. He wants Egypt to know who God is. But he also wants the Israelites, the Hebrews, his people, to know that he's God. That he's in control. That he has not forgot about them. Here's what's really cool about this story too. Just a side note. Every one of these uh, plagues that come, they all correspond with an Egyptian God. Egypt, Egypt's, Egyptians had multiple gods. And so God starts sending Jehovah God, Yahweh. He sends all of these plagues that represent their gods. For, so, so for example, one of their gods, the God of the Nile, which is the, the premier water source for them. So for Jehovah, for Yahweh to prove he's the God of all gods, he turns that water into blood. They have a frog goddess, an earth god, a bull god. You may have heard of the Egyptians' god, Ra, who was god of the sun. So what does God Jehovah do to prove he is God? He turns the sun to darkness in the fourth plague. And ultimately, in the final plague, he says, look, I am God of all gods, and I have control over life and death. And so in this, Jehovah is proving to them, listen, I alone have the authority. I alone have the power. And all of that sets up this 10th plague where we, we saw it a moment ago. Exodus 11.1, 1, Moses walks in and, and God says to him, listen, one more plague is coming and this is gonna be the one that sends Pharaoh over the cliff. He will let you go. And then he says, this is how it's gonna go down. About midnight, the death angel is going to come through and he is going to kill all the firstborn from Pharaoh's house to the barn. The firstborn of even the cattle are going to die. What did I tell you a while ago, a part of Pharaoh's, how, how maniacal and evil a leader he was. He had the firstborn sons of the Hebrews killed. So God says, you want to kill my folks? The wrath of God is real, y'all. And so we see that God says, I'll match you. And with this 10th plague, that's what we see. But the other reason why God came with this type of plague was because the Egyptians were a sinful and a godless people. But God saw his people and he made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And he says to Moses, in order for this to work, this is what you've got to do. Look at it on the screen. Exodus 12, 21, he says, listen, this is going to be unconventional, but you're gonna go get a lamb and you're going to kill this lamb. And, and, and we see all these details about how they kill the lamb, but you're gonna take this blood and you're gonna take a, a hyssop bush, which is like a bush. You're gonna take it, you're gonna dip this bush in to the blood. You're going to take this blood and you're going to spread it over the top of the door and the sides of the door. And when the death angel comes through and he sees the blood, he'll pass over. Everybody say Passover. He'll pass over that house and that home. So I got to thinking about that. Listen, if God is God and he's all powerful, why did he need a marker, the blood over the door to distinguish the Egyptians from the Hebrews? As God goes through Egypt, didn't he know who was who? Of course he did. But the reason why he needed to make a distinguishing marker, listen, 
was because not only were the Egyptians a sinful people, so were the Hebrews. So to be spared the wrath of a holy God, something had to cover them and their sin. Exodus chapter 12 gives us details of this lamb that they killed. They bring the lamb in. How they're supposed to keep the blood. They're not supposed to break its legs. They, it's a recipe, essentially, how you're to cook this lamb for you to eat it. How you're to get rid of it. How you're to eat the meal. You're to eat it with your clothes on and your staff in your hand. And be ready because you don't know when you're going to have to leave. There's all these specific instructions about how for them to do it. And guess what? Last week we talked about Abraham and Isaac and we said that, that, that Abraham had to obey completely. This group of people obeyed completely because your Bible does not say that there was one Hebrew child lost in the process. How and why did they obey completely such an odd thing to kill a lamb, to take the blood, and you're listening, you're like, that is kind of weird, y'all. I mean, really, that kind of sounds like something that would be in some strange movie. It is kind of weird, but they did it to a T. Why? Because they've already watched one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine plagues come through Egypt, and guess what they saw when those plagues came through? They saw that all of the people around them, all the Egyptians were affected by the plagues, but in their house, they're eating popcorn and drinking Diet Coke and just hanging out because they've not been touched at all. And then God comes along and he says, this is how I want you to prepare for this 10th plague. You better believe we're going out and finding a lamb and we're doing exactly what God said, right? So this all sets up this idea of the Passover. Now here's what's awesome, y'all. Oh, man, so good. This requirement of something dying in order for something to be saved. Now don't miss this. Something has to die for them to be saved. Do you get that? This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We talked about it in the Run Through the Bible series a few weeks ago that when Adam and Eve made the choice to disobey God and do their own thing, God had to make a way to cover them. They realized they were naked. And Genesis chapter 3 says, The Lord God made clothing from animal skins from Adam, for Adam and his wife. Now, it doesn't say that God killed an animal, but do we know an animal had to die for that to happen? An animal had to die in order for them to take the skin of that animal off to cover them, to cover their shame. Not just that they were physically naked, but they were spiritually exposed. Their sinfulness had been exposed. So when we get to Exodus chapter 12, this death of an animal, a lamb, in place of a person would set a system in place and a principle in motion that would continue throughout the entire Bible. A couple of books later in Leviticus chapter 17 while getting all the instructions for the tabernacle and for the priest and the sacrifices, look at what God says to Moses. The life of a creature is in the what? And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You come over to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, and the writer says this, looking back at Leviticus, the law requires that nearly everything, say it with me, be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That brings it to our key thought for today. Do not leave without knowing this. Here it is. The life is in the blood. Say that with me. The life is in the blood. And because the Israelites were obedient, when the death angel passed over the land, their firstborn sons were spared. And remember what we read a moment ago in Exodus chapter 11. It says, there'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than's ever been before. The firstborn son of Pharaoh, the firstborn son of the guy in the prison, the firstborn cow out in the field, all died. But, everybody say but. But among the Israelites, listen to this descriptor, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. If you have an outside dog, you know what outside dogs do, right? At everything, right? At everything they bark. They hear a twig pop. I mean, everything they, your Bible says that 
as the death angel went through that night, all throughout Egypt, wailing in every home. But what's going on in the camp of the Israelites? It's so quiet, the writer says, that not even a dog barked. Sounds like peace to me. Sounds like a different environment to me. Because the Lord was making a, what's that word? Say it. Distinction. Don't lose that word this morning. God was making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. We said a moment ago that the blood over the doorpost would distinguish the Hebrews from the Egyptians. And so as a result of this 10th plague, ultimately we know Pharaoh says, get out of here. I can't take any more. Let them go. And as they go, we know what comes next. The Red Sea. Manna from heaven, the Ten Commandments, water from a rock, all those amazing Sunday school stories. This is what put all of that in motion. Amazing story, right? Pretty incredible, right? But what if this story isn't about this story? What if this story of the Passover and the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt is pointing us to something bigger and something greater that God wants to show us? I said last week that this idea of something small to point to something bigger is kind of like what Marvel Studios has done for the last 15 years. They had this incredible run from 2008 to 2019 where they had 22 movies in a row. And in that 22 movie run, we met all these individual superhero characters, right? We meet them, they have a bad guy that comes up, they fight the bad guy, and then a bigger, badder bad guy comes up and they all have to get together and fight him, right? Until we get to Avengers Endgame and we've got every bad guy who's ever been and every good guy who's ever been fighting each other to this huge climactic ending, right? All right, green, green. Wake up, sit up, green. Come on, I'm losing some green. Come on, green. Green, that's all y'all in the green shirts. I, I want to see bodies moving and sitting up. Come on, let's go. I'm going to get somebody with a water bottle. I'm going to start spraying water. Here we go. I don't want you to miss this. I thought I'd get you awake with Avengers Endgame, right? So this story is a lot like that in that this one story, this Passover story, is leading to something so much bigger. It might be easy to think, wow, the Bible borrowed from Marvel. This has been around a whole lot longer. I don't know if, the, if Kevin Feige and the guys at Marvel realized it, but they were stealing off this book because this is the ultimate story of good versus evil, everything leading to one big climactic moment. So what we see in Exodus 11 and 12 is leading to something bigger. We said it during our run through the Bible series that it's like a scarlet thread goes through Scripture from beginning to end. You cut the Bible open at any verse, it will bleed Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. What's our thought for the day? The life is in the blood. We said it like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we read the whole story and we get it. But them, in that moment, they didn't see the whole story. It was not revealed to them. But we can look at it today and see shadows of sacrifice. We can see that what's going on in this story is leading to something bigger. What's a shadow? A shadow is an image cast by an object representing the form of that object. The thing about a shadow is it has no substance, but it makes you realize there's a reality there that's casting that shadow. The writer of Hebrews would, would write in Hebrews chapter 10, the law, the Old Testament, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. And so the Passover and the Exodus story isn't just about Moses leading the Hebrews out of Egypt. It's a shadow of something to come. And Paul wanted to make sure that the church at Corinth that they did not miss it, so he made it super plain. Look at what he said to them. He said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's like, if you do not realize it, if you're not if connecting the dots yet, church, Jesus is the Passover lamb that we first hear about in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. That's pretty awesome. So what are the shadows of sacrifice? 
What are those things that are kind of hidden away in this story that point to something greater? I'm glad you asked, so I'm going to answer. Here we go. You ready? Say, I'm ready. The selection of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. Exodus 12 says that the Passover lamb was chosen and brought into the house four days before Passover. The gospel says that Jesus rode into Jerusalem four days on a donkey before Passover. The selection of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. The gender of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. Exodus 12 says the Passover lamb was required to be male. Matthew 1 says she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the gender of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. The age of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. The Passover lamb was required to be a mature lamb which meant it was one year old in the prime of its life. Jesus was in the prime of his life. Luke tells us he was 30 years old when his ministry began, about a three-year ministry. He's in the prime of his life at 33 years old when he becomes the Lamb of God. The condition of the Lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. The Passover Lamb was required to be thoroughly, thoroughly examined and had to be without defect. No cuts, no bruises, no deformities. Perfect Lamb. You can't bring one... For the sacrifice that has anything wrong with it, you've got to bring your very best lamb. And look at what Peter says in Peter chapter 1. He said, the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was the perfect sinless lamb of God. The bones of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. I said a moment ago that the instructions said that this Passover lamb was to be whole, that they were not to break any of its bones. Do you know that John says in John chapter 19 that when they took Jesus off the cross, they did not break any of his bones, but the two men who were on either side of them, those bones were broken. Pretty amazing, right? The leftovers of the lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. Watch this. The instruction said that the Passover lamb had to be consumed entirely On the Passover, there couldn't be any leftovers. Nothing was to remain overnight. Jesus was taken off the cross on the very day he was crucified, although this wasn't customary. Normally, when people were crucified, they were left for for several hours, several days. But because the next day was Sabbath and and to fulfill the prophecies, Jesus was taken off the leftovers of the Lamb was a shadow of sacrifice. The blood of the lamb was certainly a shadow of sacrifice. We already said it. They were commanded to place the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost on the top and on the sides as a sign to God. That Watch this. Whoever, part of the instructions was, you stay in the house and behind the door and behind that blood and do not come out all night long. When we come to Jesus, when we stay with Jesus, when we do his will, the blood of Jesus keeps us safe from judgment. The blood of Jesus and following Jesus isn't just about that I'm blessed. The blood of Jesus is to save your hide and my hide from the wrath of God to come. It's as simple as that. Look at what the scripture says. Romans 5, 8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Praise the Lord. And since we've been made right in God's sight by what, y'all? The blood of Christ. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved. How? Through the life of his son. What did we say? The life is in the blood. Say it with me, church. The life is in the blood. Wow, that's pretty good. But as they say on the info commercials, but there's more. The hyssop branch that they use to dip into the blood 
was a shadow of sacrifice. Watch this. The blood of the Passover lamb was applied with that hyssop branch to the, to the top of the door and the sides of the door where they ate the lamb. On the cross, Jesus is offered wine mixed with gall to drink. Matthew 15. On a sponge attached, John 19 says, to a hyssop branch. They put it to the lips of Jesus, and after tasting it, he would not drink it. By refusing to drink it, he is refusing to be passed over. He is refusing to be passed by the wrath of God. In other words, he pushes it aside and dies in my place and your place that the wrath of all sin would come upon him. The darkness was a shadow of sacrifice. The plague of the firstborn occurred at midnight during darkness. And Luke 23 says about noon, darkness came over the entire land until three o'clock and the sun stopped shining three hours into the crucifixion of Jesus. The death of the firstborn was a shadow of sacrifice. While the angel killed the, the death angel killed the Egyptian firstborn, the Passover lamb died in place of the firstborn of the Israelites. Don't miss that. I know I'm throwing a ton at you, but don't miss this. The death angel comes through. He kills all of the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians. Why are the Israelite firstborn saved? Because something died in their place. Something died, a lamb was killed, the blood was applied to save the firstborn. You keep saying firstborn, does that have anything to do with Jesus? Oh, I'm glad you asked, what's this? Jesus died in our place, look at what Romans 8, 29 says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the what? Firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The wrath of God comes upon Jesus for us that he is the firstborn so that we can be born again. Woo, this is good. Man, and one more. The freedom for the Israelites was a shadow of sacrifice. The Passover lamb opened a way for freedom and they were delivered from 430 years of slavery. Jesus' death brought all mankind deliverance from slavery to sin. Paul said in Colossians, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of, his, of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Romans 8, therefore, there is no condemnation. Somebody say no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Just like they were set free from bondage and two million of them walked out when Jesus said it is finished, you and I were set free from death, hell, and the grave. Come on, give God praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Paul said, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter said, you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? But with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, the life is in the blood. Say it, the life is in the blood. Incredible story, right? Amazing deliverance. I hope you're awake enough, whether you got green or not, to at least get some of this today and put some of this together. We know what the blood did for the Israelites. It saved them, saved their lives, delivered them. But what does the blood of Jesus do in our lives? I want to share 38 things that the blood of Jesus I saw some of you, you finally were paying attention. You were like, huh? <laughs> so if I say 38, and then I just say, I'm going to show you five, you're like, oh, I can take five. Man, I kept, I kept working on this, and my list got longer and longer and longer. I was like, okay, I got I to push some of this aside for another week, and we're just going to look at five things that the blood of Jesus does for us. Number one, the blood of Jesus distinguishes us. 
Y'all, this is incredible. And this word just, it jumped out at me because it's the whole thing about the dog barking. Remember, there'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's been, ever will be again. And among the Israelites, not a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Listen, just as the blood over the doorpost distinguished the Israelites from the Egyptians, the blood of Jesus over our lives should distinguish us from the rest of the world. Oh, come on, somebody, listen. If we're following Jesus, if we have been to the cross, our lives should look different from the other people that we are around. Come on. We should not be trapped in all the garbage sin that this world is. Our marriages shouldn't be full of despondency and without hope. We shouldn't be saying, well, I've got anxiety and i got fear and i got worry. I meet up with that. Well, you're going to fight that from time to time. But because of the blood of Jesus, you don't have to live that way. There should be a distinction in our lives from us and the world around us. Amen? Look at what Peter says. He describes that distinction like this. He says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That's you. Why? So that you can do what we did this morning in this house and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Hey, listen, Greek people, Gentile people, we were not a people. There's not a Jewish person in the house. We got a house full of Gentiles people, and we were not a people, but now we are a people. Somebody give God praise for that. Amen. Hallelujah. The blood of Jesus distinguishes us. The blood of Jesus saves us. Anybody saved this morning? Oh, we could add that to the list that we talked about at the beginning of the message, right? Those things that we say, I'm saved. How many people saved tonight? I got saved. What does that mean? What does that mean you got saved? If you go and you interview those people coming out of Egypt and you ask them what they were saved from, they'd be real specific, wouldn't they, Leela? They'd say, we were saved from making bricks. We were saved from being in bondage to Egypt. We were saved from a Pharaoh who would just as soon kill our children as look at us. We were saved from a horrible life where we had no future. That's what we've been saved from. The blood of Jesus does the same thing for us. Look at what Paul says in Romans. For now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from what? From God's wrath through him. Paul says to Titus, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he what, y'all? He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done. We can't do enough good things to earn our way to heaven. I'm not righteous in any way because I'm preaching a message about this this morning. You're not righteous because you check all the boxes and you don't look, see, or do something that you're not supposed to do. Our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags. The only way we can be righteous in the presence of a holy God is because the blood of Jesus saves us. It distinguishes us. It saves us. It purchases us. Woo, this is a good one too. In the book of Acts, Paul is writing to the church, to the leaders of the, the Ephesian church, and he says to them, he says, listen, guard yourselves, guard God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock. And this is what he says about you and me. We're God's flock. His church purchased with his own blood. You and I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Peter would say it like this, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, that you were purchased. God didn't purchase us with money, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Here it is, a lamb without blemish or defect. That word redeemed right there, the Greek is a word Lutroo, and it means to release on receipt of ransom, to liberate by payment of ransom. So God lays down the life of his son. He gives his son as a ransom for us. Jesus lays down his life to pay for our sin, and he purchases us. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus. And then 
over in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, look at what it says. It says, in heaven, they're singing a new song that says, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you what, church? Purchase for God, persons from every tribe, language, and people, and every nation. When you spend money on something and you purchase something, it's yours. It means something to you, right? When you spend big bucks on something, it costs you something, and it means something to you because you spent your life, your time, your money, your efforts on it to buy it. And it means something to you. You mean much to God because it costs God everything he had to purchase you. As we say, he bankrupt heaven to send Jesus to purchase you out of your sin. So the blood of Jesus distinguishes us, saves us, purchases us, it frees us. Jesus said in John 8, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Well, this sounds like a connection to Exodus 12, right? We're talking about this nation that was in slavery. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, say it with me, church, you will be free indeed. The blood of Jesus frees us from our sin, from our grief, from our sorrow, from our fear, from our pain, from the curse Paul would say in Colossians, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish. And here it is, free from accusation. The blood of Jesus frees us from our past. And somebody here needs to hear that this morning. Somebody watching on live stream needs to hear that this morning. There is no skeleton in your closet. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing you can drag to this altar today that's so ugly and so nasty and so terrible that it cannot be redeemed and it can be cleansed and it can be washed and you can be free in Jesus' name. Amen. Be free from your past. That Hey, it is not the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus who comes up and keeps on knocking on your door and saying, hey, don't you forget about what you did, buddy. Don't you forget. Hey, don't you forget all that stuff in your past. You know if you don't think about it and go through it your mind and you just, you feel sorry for yourself that you really aren't saved. That's a bunch of baloney. And if I talk like Miss Renee, I'd say it's a bunch of darn baloney. The blood of Jesus distinguishes us, it saves us, it purchases us, it frees us. Kevin, if you'll come, here's the last one. Man, you guys are doing awesome. We're almost done. It washes us. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. John is getting this vision of Jesus. And this is what it says. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and what church? Washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We talked a minute ago about how you purchase something and what it means to you. But when you love something, you'll take care of it. You get you a brand new vehicle, you'll wash it, won't you? Here, here in the next few weeks, you know, once it, we get over this cold snap and it really warms up, we'll start looking. Those of us with vinyl siding on our house, we'll start looking at our house and be like, man, this really looks bad after this winter and the fall. And we'll what? Wash, power wash our house. We'll pay somebody to come and do it. Your children, you love your, you love your baby, so you wash your baby, right? You wash your kids. Get them in that bathtub. I've always said one of the greatest days in the life of a parent is when a child can take a bath by themselves. Glory to God, that'll make you shout right there when you get to that point. When they can clothe themselves, feed themselves, go to the bathroom by themselves and take a bath by themselves. You talk about getting free from Egypt. <laughs> but when you, when you care about something and you love something, you'll wash it. So follow me. 
God loves you and I so much that he could not imagine us being separated from him. And his wrath, and we can't be in the presence of God because he's a holy God. So he did something about it. He sent Jesus, and he washed you, and he washed me, and he removed our sins. See, sin, don't miss this, sin always brings death. And the only thing more powerful to wash sin and death away was the blood of Jesus. The precious, spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Revelation says, slain from the foundation of the world. Never plan B, always plan A. God knew what was going to go down. Jesus knew what was going to happen. The Bible says there's life in the blood. So when we are washed by the spotless blood of Jesus, he brings life, canceling that sin debt, canceling our past. And I know we sing sometimes, talk about how God covers our sins, and he does. And and we know in this story they were covered, but there's something greater than being covered by the blood. It's being washed by the blood. That our sins aren't just covered, they're removed and they're washed completely as if they had never happened before. So the blood of Jesus, it distinguishes us, it saves us, it purchases us, it frees us, it washes us. So that's why, y'all, we can sing, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. Anybody thankful today for the blood of Jesus? Boy, I hope my prayer for this day has been that we would leave this place, even though this is something we've heard a million times, many of us, And those of us who are new in our faith would say, ah, now I know why they're singing about blood. Now I know why they're talking about a lamb. It makes sense now because it's all one story. Those shadows of sacrifice are amazing because they point us to the fact that the life is in the blood. Amen? Let's stand together as the worship team comes.